Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. Now, I have been waiting for this day for five years since the very first meeting that I had about starting this podcast in 2018. Yes, five years ago. It was actually October 2018. Today is the day that I get to spend the entire episode talking about CMV, which is really a dream come true. If those of you have been listening to this podcast at all over the last five years, you know that this is my favorite infection, and I'm so excited. And I couldn't be joined by two more stellar guests, both people who are world-leading experts in this space and thought leaders in this field. So first, Dr. Ajit LeMay. Dr. LeMay is a board-certified physician at the Infectious Diseases and Tropical Medicine Clinic and Kidney Care and Transplantation Services at UW Medical Center and the director of UW Medicine's Solid Organ Transplant Infectious Diseases Program. This is the Washington UW, not UW, where I did my residency in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, He's a professor of medicine and allergy and infectious diseases and an adjunct professor of laboratory medicine. His clinical and research interests include prevention, diagnosis, treatment of infections in solid organ transplant patients and cell transplantation patients, and overall developing better ways to do all of these things in our transplant population. So, Ajit, I think I've seen you speak several times and long admired your contributions to this field from afar, but I'm thrilled to have you here today. Thank you for coming to Breakpoints. Thanks very much for having me, Erin. It's really a pleasure to be here with you and Dr. Kopp. Thank you. With no further ado, then let me please introduce Dr. Camille Cotton. Dr. Cotton is the Clinical Director of Transplant and Immunocompromised Host Infectious Diseases at the MassGen Hospital in Boston. So, Dr. Cotton, we appreciate you all letting us come to your hometown last month for ID Week. I'm sure we'll be talking about some of the things we learned there today. Dr. Cotton has a robust clinical practice for cell and solid organ transplantation patients, and her interests include vaccination, travel medicine for transplant recipients, and reducing the infectious risks of immunocompromising medications. She's written hundreds of papers on these topics, including serving as the lead author for the most recent version of the International Consensus Guidelines, which came out in the year 2018. I recently spent time in Australia, too. So as a fun fact, I met two wonderful people. It seemed like everyone in Australia was like, I've been to America and I stayed with Dr. Cotton. And so she's apparently just a fabulous host. And thank you for representing our country so well to our lovely Australian colleagues. And thank you for all that you're doing for our community, for your patients and for being here today. Thanks a lot. It's really a pleasure to be here today. I also love talking about CMV, so uh, this is a great topic. All right. Well, let's get started because we have a lot to get through. So there is, because I think the space gets a little overwhelming, particularly for people who don't practice frequently in transplantation, but they may or may not see these patients every now and again. So there's cell transplantation, and then there are the myriad diseases and phenotypes within that quite broad bucket now and getting broader every day as we get all kinds of new cell technologies and T-cell technologies. Then there's solid organ transplantation, still broad but somewhat limited because there's only so many organs in the body, but still many things going on there. Then there's prevention of this infection. We have treatment of this infection. We have old drugs that we've used for quite some time that have toxicities and are fraught with dosing issues. Then there's new drugs, which is exciting, but they come with their own set of considerations. Lab monitoring in CMV is like could be an hour-long podcast of its own. And then on top of that, we have the entire immune system of the host and the things to talk about and how that's different between solid organ and cell transplantation. And we have 60 minutes, so let's go and let's get through this. 
when I was thinking about this topic and starting to outline this episode, I was smiling to myself because I was like, I feel like there used to be literally eight of us maybe in the world that cared about this and that really focused on this area and that we're really in this space. And now I'm seeing tons of transplant ID content at, and these huge sessions at ID Week, whole tracks and focuses on this space at ECMID and more, which is awesome. And CMV does in the last few years have a lot of new drugs, new trials for prevention and treatment, and even vaccines, which we're going to talk about at the end of the episode. And so this is just seems like it's more common. Seems like even people outside of the space are appreciating the importance of this. So I guess let's start there. Is CMV more common? Like, do more people have it? What's the epidemiology like? And are we just more aware of it? And what's kind of going on in this landscape? So Camille, if you want to kick us off. Sure. Well, I think that there's a lot more recognition of CMV and there's a lot more screening for CMV. There's a lot more detection, especially of the lower level disease that we might not have previously recognized. It is one of the most common infections after solid organ and stem cell transplant. So um, there's still a lot of it, even with much better prevention methods and whatnot, we still see a fair amount of CMV, unfortunately. And so there's still a lot of work to be done in this sphere. I do think you're right that we're seeing some unusual CMV outside of solid organ and stem cell transplant. And we certainly see atypical cases in people with vasculitis and um, inflammatory bowel disease and other situations. And so I, I think that our knowledge of CMV is growing, but also the fact that we see it in a lot of different posts as well. So it remains quite interesting. Tragically, I think we have ongoing job security in the field. I, I thought that maybe we'd be putting it behind us, but so far, not so lucky. Yeah, it seems like it's around to stay. And CMV is interesting, right? It's complex. It's fascinating. And I think as we get into how CMV impacts our patients, I would say more people are probably aware of the direct effects of this virus. And so talking about job security, the management, not only of the virus itself, but then all of the consequences. And those direct effects are more of what it does to end organ systems, retinitis, encephalitis, pneumonias, gastroenteritis is very common, even hepatitis, nephritis. It does seem like it can impact every organ. But then there's all the indirect effects of CMV. And this gets more complex and more nuanced. And Ajit, you actually spoke at a session in ID Week with a physician from UCLA, and she said something that will stick with me, I think. She goes, well, CMV, it can hurt you fast or it can hurt you slow. What did she mean by that? What are these indirect effects of CMV? Yeah, that's a good question. And we should ask Joanna Shaneman from UCLA, who I like that term that she used to, to describe some of the differences between what we consider and what you pointed out, Aaron, as being direct effects of CMV. And I think just to make sure that everyone's on the same page about what do we mean by direct versus indirect, I kind of think about it this way, and I'll acknowledge that I don't think there are concrete, well-accepted, universal definitions of what constitutes direct CMV infects versus indirect. So I'll at least share with you what how I think about them, and I would appreciate Camille's uh, perspective and, and perhaps clarification of the way I'm thinking about it to set me straight. But the direct effects, exactly as you pointed out, are things that we recognize, I think, as overt CMV disease. It means someone has CMV infection, someone has attributable signs or symptoms, organ involvement, CMV syndrome. And in general, my understanding of direct effects is that there's generally a pretty good relationship between the amount of virus or viral load 
and the likelihood of, in this point in time, having CMV disease as a direct effect of high-level CMV infection, or if I don't have it now, and if I don't do anything, the likelihood that I will develop those direct effects or symptoms that we would attribute being directly related to high-grade replication. So that's sort of how I think about um, when I explain it, for example, to, to colleagues or, or trainees, that that's what, we're, that's what we mean by the bucket of direct effects of CMV. What I think is actually as, if not more interesting, is this grab bag of less well-defined indirect effects. And, and in some ways, I don't really like the term indirect because it implies that it's not really due to CMV, when in my mind, I think of it as perhaps it's not due as closely directly related to high viral loads. So CMV has the capacity to um, uh, have a number of biological effects that can happen even with subclinical replication. So in a patient without any signs or symptoms of overt, I'm sick and I have CMV pneumonia. And even in the presence of latency, there are certain products or proteins made from CMV that have profound effects on the immune system. And although the mechanisms between subclinical infection and some of these nebulous other important clinical outcomes with which CMV has been linked, um, there are pretty consistent findings of a relationship of CMV with various bad things or clinical outcomes. And I'm impressed by data using huge databases like SRTR, for example, where just being D plus R minus, even when controlled for everything else, is a mortality disadvantage. And that's in the current era where we think we have pretty good preventive strategies, pretty good diagnostic strategies, at least a few more therapeutic tools in our toolbox. So that's very humbling, I think, for me to see that CMV still seems to have an impact. And that impact, I think, can be separated from direct CMV high-level replication, immediate attributable morbidity and mortality. And I think the million-dollar question is, what are the mechanisms underlying those associations? Are there certain viral thresholds that are required? Can it happen just with latency? And again, what are the mechanisms to help provide some guidance about how one might intervene? So I think that's a very interesting and perhaps understudied aspect of CMV where the majority of our focus is how can I prevent this person from getting sick with CMV, um, which of course has important merit, but may not really do justice to the whole um, uh, set of impacts that CMB might have in our transplant and other immunosuppressed populations. So a long-winded answer to a complex question that there are many more questions than answers, I'm afraid. Yep, that's our whole space, right? I love it. And I think some of the things I pulled out from Joanna's talk and your talk in that session were, I mean, things you know and understand, but when you hear them said, you're like, wow, that it really is true. Like how just being CMV seropositive can make you age faster, so to speak, because it contributes to immunosenescence and the consistent association with CMV and mortality outside of all the other things that could cause bad outcomes in these patients. And 
CMV Im- impairing vaccine response and all of these other things. And so I, it's really fascinating, but I think you explained it well. And it wasn't that long winded. I promise it was. I have a little timer as we record these episodes and I keep track of it. That's my job. And it wasn't that long winded. Feel free so. to edit it out, uh, Aaron, <laughs> if needed. No, no. It was a perfect segue, too. Let's talk about prevention. How do we prevent people from getting disease to start with before we then go into treatment and all the other cool strategies that are in the pipeline? So, We are trying to prevent all of these detrimental effects of this virus. So Camille, why don't you take this one? What are the current strategies for prevention? And we have talked about this on Breakpoints in various aspects before and covered some studies. But I think if you could walk our audience through, starting with the highest level, the two strategies of preemptive therapy or whatever you want to call it, and universal prophylaxis, where do we stand? What are the benefits to each strategy walking through cell transplantation in solid organ? Yeah. So there are two main ways to do it. I do think that for prevention, you need to do one or the other and not just some groups tried denial, but I don't think denial is a very good approach to prevention because I think that one can get you into hot water. Um, so preemptive therapy is... Like perfect, really, like pretending CMV doesn't exist or like prevent- denying claims for... Um, mean not, really, not acknowledging the risk that it might <laughs> like have. this is not a thing <laughs> yeah oh boy yeah it's um, a thing plenty okay. of groups do that for more for the seropositive recipients they just like hope for the best and don't want to necessarily do anything about it um so preemptive therapy is where you do weekly usually weekly monitoring i think sometimes in the uk and elsewhere they might do twice a week monitoring but in general given the kinetics of cmv usually weekly monitoring is adequate and usually for about like the first well 3 months to be conservative but after transplant just sort of weekly monitoring for cmv what we call dnaemia which is also called viral load but technically isn't necessarily People think it correlates with viremia. It's really just the amount of DNA in the bloodstream. And once it reaches a certain threshold, then you would initiate treatment dose um, antiviral therapy. So um, one of the biggest issues, and one thing that we really wish could have come out of the guidelines, would be a threshold. Like once you reach some magic number, that's where you need to trigger treatment. But unfortunately, and we can talk about this more in the diagnostics part, It really depends on whether you're testing plasma or whole blood and then what type of diagnostic platform you're using. And so it's not really possible to say at, you know, a universally defined threshold, initiate treatment then. Seems like a lower threshold is appropriate for about the 20 to 25 percent of transplants done in the U.S. that are donor positive, recipient negative. But then for about 50 percent of transplants that are recipient seropositive, Somewhere in the, you know, again, depends on whole blood versus plasma, et cetera, but somewhere in the two to 3,000 range, once that is sort of hit, then people may wish to initiate treatment. And honestly, that is a perfectly fine approach um, for most organs. And we say that in the guidelines. We do have a little bit of caution for things like lung transplant and intestinal transplant in that there's not a lot of data to support preemptive therapy. But most of them, this is a perfectly fine approach as long as you can organize so that you get weekly testing done. I will say, you know, for people that are, live close to their transplant center, that's pretty straightforward. I've had a lot of issues with getting weekly testing 
done. Sometimes I get serial CMV IgM or IgG sent, which is not what I need. And sometimes the CMV can actually cause problems while I'm waiting for them to figure out how to send the right test. So that can be an issue. There's a lot of organizational need and then transfer of data back to the transplant center and then someone at the transplant center has to respond. So there's a lot of the mechanics, but that's definitely a fine approach. And then the other would be universal prophylaxis. So basically saying for any cohort of at-risk patients via CMV, donor-positive, recipient-negative, or um, recipient-positive, anytime there's CMV risk, saying that you will give three months, six months, or some other defined period of universal antiviral um, therapy to that cohort. I do think that we are making advances on duration of universal prophylaxis, either using things like the absolute lymphocyte count to determine the best duration for an individual patient, or sometimes the interferon gamma release assays can also be useful for determining duration of prophylaxis, um, although that tends to be more useful in the lower or moderate risk uh, seropositive recipients. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. That's a good summary. I think this is an oversimplification, absolutely. But I think in general, what we've traditionally done, at least when the last iteration of the guidelines came out, is that in cell transplantation, more preemptive therapy because of the myelosuppressiveness of ganciclovir and valganciclovir. But then in solid organ transplants, more universal prophylaxis, where it seems like everyone's on valgan for X amount of time. Then latermavir was developed. And so how did that change the game? And what is your sense, actually, as I, I wrote this outline last week, and then there's this cancer ID listserv I'm on, and they asked this very question on the listserv. And I was like, oh, good, this is still because I was like, maybe people have figured this out by now, but it seems like no, they have not. And so what latermavir's role in therapy now, since it came out post the last iteration of the guidelines, and then what's your sense of how people are positioning this for cell transplant patients? Oh, Ajit's like raising his hand. I love it. So people can't see, they can only hear, right? And so okay. yeah, <laughs> I have I to, sometimes I narrate the video, which please, <laughs> please, sir, jump in. Okay. No, I just wanted to comment. I, I think Camille brought up a really good um, sort of conundrum or complexity with preemptive therapy is when do I start it? Do I start it now? Is it too low? Is it too high? And I think there are a lot of important unanswered questions about that component of preemptive therapy along with organization. But I do think we now have clarity from a couple lines of evidence that makes it a little bit easier for people who might be considering using preemptive therapy. And for R plus patients, people who are already seropositive and have latent CMV, they may or may not also be at risk for super infection if the donor is positive. There it can be tricky. Is there some low level that will likely respond and I don't have to do anything and avoid the risks and toxicities of antiviral therapy? But for our highest risk group that gives us 95% of CMV headaches, namely donor positive recipient seronegative, it's kind of easy. Any detection of CMV on their person is prima facie evidence of primary infection, and that's bad because of replication kinetics in that setting and warrants institution of therapy. And, and we now have data from kidney transplant as well as randomized controlled trials of preemptive therapy where that sort of approach, any CMV detected equals primary infection. And if you do nothing, viral kinetics being rapid and risk for CMV disease developing, that that be used. So I, I do want to just clarify that I think in the setting 
of that D plus R minus, it's easy. Anything is bad and you should start antiviral therapy. I think that challenges really remain in R plus where to set the bar um, to, to treat only patients who might be at higher risk. And that for sure requires additional work. But the good news is for the people who unfortunately account for 90 plus percent of CMV problems in the current era, it's easy. <laughs> Just do it if you detect CMV. And it doesn't matter whether it's in whole blood, plasma, PBLs, PBMCs, you have diagnosed primary CMV infection with that test, assuming it's not a false positive, which fortunately in a reasonably serviced uh, lab should, should be very, very low. That's a good point. And I, so we're talking solid organ transplant here. And I think, I think that's important because I remember when I was a resident at Wisconsin, we used to, our transplant ID attendings used to get in like brawls over undetected versus unquantifiable PCRs and being like, it's below the limit of detection. I'm going to keep treating this patient in the D plus R minus versus like completely undetected. And we used to have so many discussions over the clinical relevance of that. But to your point, anything is treated. And so we would, we wouldn't accept just below the limit of detect, below the limit of quantification. We'd treat till a true negative. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I was referring more to initiation of antiviral therapy. So in a D plus R minus patient who I'm monitoring, whether it be whole blood, PBL, PBMC, et cetera, plasma, if there is a test that detects CMV DNA at any level, and that could be a thousand, whatever, or hopefully much lower than that, even if the result is DNA, CMV DNA detected below the level of quantitation. We have good data from uh, the Lumley paper, Paul Griffith's group, suggesting when they used a higher threshold for initiation, everyone who had, again, we're talking about D plus R minus, who had DNA detected, even if it was below the threshold, would always, in the absence of therapy, reach a trigger point at a higher level. So I wanted to clarify that that would be the trigger used for initiation of therapy. We also have data from Paul Griffith's group using two different approaches of when to stop therapy. Don't detect it at all. Stop it at some level other than not detected. And it's the results I found to be quite interesting. You basically, if you stop therapy at some level, there is a higher level of relapse than if you treat until there's no level, but the duration of therapy turns out to be generally similar. So pay the piper up front or pay the piper later <laughs> is essentially yep. the, the message of, of those data to me. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think we're going to talk about that. I want to move into the capsule study next. So I actually want to talk about the duration of the, the total exposure to antiviral and the different strategies is, is a fascinating takeaway from there. But thank you for that because I also wrote, I write notes when you guys are talking too, and I wrote down the different quantifications in my little pad here as something to come back to because it's a question we get all the time. So thank you for emphasizing that. But Camille, Latermavir, is it standard care? Is it still chaotic? Sometimes I get the sense that it might be both, depending on the center. So what's your take on latermavir and its positioning in, in cell transplantation, pivoting off of solid organ? So I think that it's pretty well accepted for the higher risk stem cell transplants. But I do think there's a lot of institutional variation. And one thing I've learned is that there can actually be regional variations in what insurance covers. Like there's a, a lot of practice variation across the United States. So 
I know that some centers have adopted it for a lot larger of a cohort than others. And I, I do think that it's still a work in progress. Getting coverage is improving all the time, but there is regional variation. And I've seen some surveys, but I think that there can be bias in who fills out the survey. So I'm not entirely sure how accurate those surveys are. That is also very true. What's your take? What's your personal thought on where it should be used? Um, If everyone had coverage, if we live in a unicorn land like Australia. If it were free and everyone had coverage? Because it's not free. Um, It's not free. Even though it's covered, it's, you know, it's hard because some of the newer agents tend to be pretty expensive, but then treating CMV is also pretty expensive. So it's important to think about the cost benefit there. Um, I do think there are a lot of people that could benefit by good CMV prevention, but I don't think it's necessarily needed for all cohorts. And there can be a lot of variation in local treatment regimens and whatnot. So I think it's hard to say, like, thou shalt give everyone latemavir. You know, that's too much. Um, I don't know, Ajit, what do you think about um, in your area? You know, as a person who thinks a lot about preemptive therapy, as you're well aware already, my bias We're talking is, cell uh, transplantation only, though. So yeah, c- cell, I, and, cell only, yeah. And, and that's why it's interesting to me that based on the data, or at least my interpretation of the data in stem cell, I kind of feel like there are very few persons except seronegative or D plus R minus patients in the uh, hemat- hematopoietic cell transplant setting where I wouldn't want to use latermavir prophylaxis. And all the insurance costs, those issues just aside for the sake of argument, like what are we doing with prophylaxis? And I think it's okay to have perhaps that bias in HCT and have perhaps a different bias in SOT because they're really important biological differences. 90, 85 to 90% of patients at some time if they don't have relapse of their original disease, if they're being transplanted for a malignant disease, they will be off immunosuppression. So their risk of developing CMV-related complications, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I'm very impressed by the 24-week um, survival difference, sort of proof in principle that ah, CMV does all these bad things and it's not just that CMV is killing you. Wow. A randomized multi-country um, R placebo-controlled RCT shows a difference. So to me, it's sort of full circle about the story of CMV and things beyond just CMV disease that might be impacted if you had an effective way um, to to prevent CMV-related complications. So I'm I'm very impressed for all those reasons with the effect and some of the data on real-world use of latermavir suggesting that the survival disadvantage seen in R plus as different than SOT where it's D plus R minus actually narrows in the latermavir era compared to before when preemptive therapy using IV GAN or Valgan or FOS or Sidofavir was the standard. So to me, all those lines of evidence make me pretty bullish on use of latermavir prophylaxis in the setting of HCT. But Again, huge, important questions, feasibility, should it be everyone who's R+, plus? Uh, what about, you know, how many is the number needed to treat, all those things. But I think the body of evidence, in my estimation, is quite supportive 
of using latermavir as studied for the reasons I just went over. Awesome. Thank you. I think that's good. And I I think this is a good time to remind our audience of the nuances because I know I keep interjecting and saying, focus on cell transplant, focus on solid organ transplant because CMV gets very confusing in this regard. And like I said in the intro, it's too much for an hour, but we're going to try to do it. But to frame for our audience right now and take a little pause here. So when we're talking cell transplantation, formerly known as bone marrow transplantation or whatever bucket you want to put it in, recipient positive there is a higher risk bucket because in that setting, you're getting reactivated infection. So you're receiving an immune system that has already experienced CMV in the setting of like you, the person having your immune system obliterated in order to get said cells put into you. And then you're only on immunosuppression for a set amount of time. Hopefully, you know, hopefully you don't experience graft versus disease or have some kind of chronic complication or another transplant. And so as a G said more eloquently than I'm saying right now, that risk is more finite, but the benefits of latermavir seem to be there and have long-term benefits. Whereas in solid organ transplantation, when we're talking donor positive CMV, so the organ you're getting in your body has CMV in it, recipient negative. So you, the recipient of the organ have never experienced CMV. That, like Ajit said earlier, is primary infection and you're going to be on immunosuppression for the rest of your life. And so that is kind of the nuances here and some of the differences and where it gets fun and where it gets complicated when we talk about all these different trials. But flipping back into solid organ transplant now, since we just talked about cell, Ajit, there are a couple studies in recent years, very recent years, past couple years, to shake up this prophylaxis landscape. So Camille gave us an awesome overview of kind of where we stand And then we've had all these awesome RCTs coming out, the first of which was Capsule, which I think was presented as a late breaker in 2018 as well. It was like a big year for CMV. Um, So 2018, they let me start this podcast. We had these trials coming out. It was chaos. So Capsule, late breaker, ID week 2018, and then published, I think, the year after. So this was prophylaxis in liver transplant patients. Why liver? What was Capsule? What's the deal? Why do we care? Okay, the first uh, bit of trivia like, is he's like taking off his glasses, capsule? guys. He's like getting his hands ready. It's like rolling um, up his sleeves. Yeah, um, my head's in the game to answer this question. First yeah. thing, a bit of trivia is what does capsule stand for? And have a terrific research team. They came up with this acronym. I, as you've heard from Colt, I, I love acronyms. And capsule stands for comparison of antiviral prevention strategies in liver transplant, a.k.a. capsule. That's nice. And that was a trial yeah. that um, Nina Singh led and several other investigators in the U.S. that really wanted to test the hypothesis based on preliminary data suggesting that in this very specific uh, group of transplant patients, namely high-risk D plus R minus liver transplant, that preemptive therapy would be superior for a primary endpoint of CMV disease. And getting back to your question, why the heck are you studying livers? Aren't there a lot more kidney transplant patients? And so the method to that madness is as follows. First, liver transplant represents a specific population um, that I presume most people know about, that there is no FDA-approved antiviral drug for prevention that's commercially available. Oral gancyclovir that people may remember that was available since the mid-90s or so and had been FDA approved on the basis of a placebo-controlled RCT was compared with valgancyclovir across a range of organ transplant populations. 
And surprisingly, and people still wonder, is this some fluke? Is this just some weird thing that happened in the trial? The punchline is that specifically in D plus R minus liver, but not in any of the other organs that were studied in that multi-organ trial comparing head-to-head prophylaxis with oral GAN versus ValGAN, there was actually a significantly higher incidence of end-organ or tissue-invasive CMV disease in the group randomized to ValGAN cycliver. And again, I'm not here to Monday morning quarterback and say, is that real? Is that a fluke? But basically where that left us is that for many patients, this was not approved. It's expensive. You can't use that stuff. And clinical practice has slowly evolved because there is no other alternative for patients undergoing prophylaxis. But that was one reason that there really isn't an FDA approved option for that group. Second, I think we all know that our liver transplant patients often have concomitant bone marrow dysfunction which can make them particularly vulnerable to uh, myelotoxicity of gancyclovir being one of the primary in its various formulations. And then they often have hypersplenism, yet another contributor to myelotoxicity since people are sequestering platelets and white cells and so on. So really it represented a group that we felt had an important unmet need because there wasn't anything licensed very vulnerable to the toxicities of what people were using off-label, and preliminary data suggesting in the very small observational studies that the rates of CMB disease were relatively low with a preemptive therapy. So that was really the foundation upon which the trial was specifically designed to take place in liver transplant, at least as an initial But you bring up a great question, like, is this stuff, is this approach applicable beyond liver or is this just the liver thing? And we can talk about that later. But to answer your direct question, why liver? That's why it was liver, at least initially. Thank you. That was beautiful. I think that history is really important. I um, am very fortunate to work with Dr. Singh here at Pitt. So I know some of that and how that came to be. But I think it's important for our audience to know, too, because I don't think a lot of people realize that. Okay, so what'd you find? And then I'm going to ask Camille what she did about it, because I know this was when these results came out, it, you know, it says, should we change our practice? Yeah. So the trial designed by Singh and, and colleagues was really a head-to-head comparison in high-risk D plus R minus patients who were randomized one-to-one stratified by site and ATG use to either three months of valgancyclovir, which was the most commonly used prophylaxis regimen or to preemptive therapy at a central lab where uniform testing weekly was done for 100 days. Any level of detection, whether it was quantifiable or not, was used as the trigger for all the reasons we previously talked about to initiate treatment doses of valgancyclovir renally adjusted per the package insert. And those two strategies were conducted until 100 days post-transplant And then patients were up to clinical care in terms of whether to monitor further. And there was a lot of monitoring that happened after that or simply to watch. And the primary endpoint at the end of 12 months or one year was endpoint committee adjudicated CMV disease. So a really robust, clinically relevant endpoint by persons who were, to the extent possible, masked to whether they got preemptive therapy or prophylaxis as an open-label trial. Obviously, it couldn't be that it was completely masked, but that was the attempt. 
And the primary result of the study was that it met its primary endpoint, and there was a slightly more than 60% reduction in the incidence of CMV disease with preemptive therapy compared to prophylaxis, 9.1% and 19.1%, which tracked pretty well with multiple studies suggesting that's about the rate that was observed in D plus R minus liver transplant patients who received uh, about three months of valgancyclovir prophylaxis. Other really important questions were, are we preventing CMV disease, but perhaps seeing higher rates of other things that we care about? Getting back to the discussion we had earlier about indirect effects. Why are we allowing, facilitating, aiding and abetting CMV infection in preemptive therapy? So that could be a reason that there may be less CMV disease, but in the end, we're doing more harm than good. And the punchline is that after a mean of 3.2 years of follow-up, there were no differences in the intent to treat population in important things like, are you dead or are you alive? Is your graft alive or dead? Did you have acute cellular rejection or not? So things that I think we could argue we, are we care. pretty We care about thing. those things. Yeah, yeah, I hear people care about, about mortality. Things. I don't know. And, and now in secondary analyses that were just recently published in CID, we're learning some really interesting stuff that I, I'm, I'm very surprised about. Let people come to their own conclusions. And we may talk about this, so this might be on your list to, to discuss in part two or three or four, um, is that CMV DNA emia that occurred late after either prophylaxis or preemptive therapy was discontinued seemed to be associated with worse survival. So we're talking about a really hard endpoint here. You're alive or you're a debt during long-term follow-up. And that was differentially impacted by the two strategies, perhaps mediated by differences in the immune response that were generated to CMV. And that may be a tickler for future things. But the key results were the trial met its primary endpoint of superiority in reduction of CMV disease by one year with preemptive therapy compared to prophylaxis, and that there were no significant differences, although not powered to detect things like differences in mortality in the initial intent to treat analysis. Awesome. Thank you. And we are definitely coming right back to the immune response aspect of it because I think those data are absolutely fascinating and what you're doing with them currently. But before that, so Camille, this was a big thing. We did universal prophylaxis at my center. Um, so when this came out, what did you do with these data? Did this change practice? We talked about how logistically complex it is, especially for these patients who are coming five hours from very rural areas to get transplants and how hard it can be to do weekly monitoring and whatnot, and then initiate therapy appropriately. So what did your center do with these data? Or holistically, what do you think we should do with these data? Well, I think in the United States, I think most programs do universal prophylaxis, and that's pretty standard. It's really easy. I know that some programs even give universal prophylaxis against CMV to donor negative, recipient negative. They just like make it cookie cutter for everyone, which always seemed like that one seems like a waste to me. But I know that most programs do universal prophylaxis. So I think what this one did is showed us in this higher risk donor positive recipient negative group that this can be safe, can be well done. You know, it really strengthened what I think is an excellent tool in the toolbox. It does take a lot of uh, intense laboratory follow-up and just making sure that the people, you know, go to the lab, we see the labs, all of that. So 
part of it's just organizational on our part, why we don't use it so much. I will say that in the trial, it's interesting that both cohorts ended up getting about the same amount of valgancyclovir. And like, what's the mystery there? It should be like one group got half, one group got twice as much, whatever. And that must have an impact on the indirect effects or not. It's just, it's so interesting. Both groups got about the same amount of GCSS. You know, if you ask me, I would have said that the preemptive therapy group gets a lot less valgancyclovir somehow, or somehow GCSF use were mod- different. I have to say it's a beautiful trial and just so well done. And it is helping us understand the indirect effects. When we were talking before about the indirect effects, one of the things is that they are really hard to study in a systematic format. I mean, there's all these things that we say relate to CMB, but I think this is one of the first trials where we're actually really seeing some interesting, robust and data. And some of it's not what we would have expected. You bring up a good point about the, which I think is lost on some people, because when you look at duration of drug days, you have to remember that a day in the life of preemptive therapy is treatment. So double duty, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. treatment doses. And so when you add up the tonnage or microgrammage uh, of valgancyclovir in ARM1, we use tonnage they, a lot in pharmacy. Yeah, that's <laughs> is twice a day versus prophylactic doses. You're absolutely right that the actual, just if you measure it in grams uh, of, of drug on average per person, they're similar. But that's what I think really speaks to the fundamental mechanism about then how, why does it work? Is it just because at first blush, you could say, well, you gave uh, 100 days of tonnage to group one and you gave only 60 days on average of tonnage to group two. You know, that's easy. This is just related to weak immune responses because you just poured more lymphotoxic stuff on it. But that's not true. There is a certain, I think I'm coming around to this possibility that you got to have a little bit of the hair of the dog that bit you to see, to understand, shake hands and do battle with CMV at some level. And at what level that's not too much, maybe in the long term. And we have to think about long term when we're thinking about indirect effects, because it's not good enough to live six months or one year or two years or three years. It's about the rest of my life on immunosuppression, which is a fundamental difference compared to HCT. So I think it speaks to the fact that it's it's not just totally about drug exposure, but it's the whole concept that immune priming might be required with a safety net to prevent progression to CMV disease that might ultimately be responsible for optimal CMV control for the long term which is what we care about for indirect effects, and still be effective in terms of preventing CMV disease, which in and of itself has value. So I thank you for bringing up that really important point that I think sometimes is lost on people and, you know, is just touted as well. There's only 60 days. Well, wait a minute. Let's look in the details. There's actually about the same amount of tonnage, if you'll allow me to use that term, between the two groups, it's just spread out differently over 60 days over versus 100 days. You know, it's so interesting about the hair of the dogs. I think that isn't really the right expression, but we'll just use it for CMV. Oh, no. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's the right expression. Yes. We got into the dirty, we got into the dirty secret that you don't actually save any drug, which like, <laughs> is what pharmacists hang their hat on. So the right, fact that that's right. out, like, 
Right. Uh-oh. Patients We've are going to get the, the same amount of drug, guys. <laughs> so, I know. That's important. I remember with the first version of the guidelines, some of the people who'd been doing this for a while actually said that maybe we were seeing different amounts of CMV with oral gancyclovir, which was really poorly bioavailable. It was bioavailable. I think it's 5 to 6% as opposed to like the 60 to 70% with algancyclovir. And maybe there was a little leaky CMV. And then people were developing an immune response. And some people say that valgancyclovir is so good and effective and really blocks all CMV and that there's no hair of the dog. So maybe we need a little vaccine hair of the dog. Um, CMV blips, if you will. Don't people call them that? Is that a thing? <laughs> if I make that up? With the tummy here. Yeah, blips. Yes, that's it. Well, blitermavir. Um, so let's talk about this. This is really important. And what I really wanted to get to here is CMV specific T cell immunity or CMI, as you guys call it. So, Ajit, you've done a lot of work on the capsule patients, if I understand correctly, and their immune assays and what you're finding from this. And I know it just, again, more questions than answers the more you start to look at it and how fascinating this all is. But you presented some of your data at ECMID and at ID Week. What did you find? Can you talk us through what Camille is getting at here and then and what you started to say and why some exposure to virus might be a good thing and, and what that's looking like in the data you're seeing? Yeah, you know, when the trial was designed, there had to be a mechanism. Why does letting CMV happen and then treating it, what's the benefit of that versus just taking it off the table altogether with a prophylactic approach? So I think what was really stimulating for us at, during the time of the trial design was to bake in essentially mechanistic studies to try and understand if we observed what we thought we would observe, namely the superiority clinical benefit in terms of CMV disease prevention, we baked into the trial immune mechanistic assays to try and understand and define the mechanisms um, that that could explain what we anticipated in finding clinically. And so at the end of the 100 days of prophylaxis, then at six months and 12 months, all patients who were in the trial and were alive and weren't lost to follow-up submitted specimens for analysis of CMV-specific T-cell responses, cellular responses, as well as neutralizing antibody responses. And we went into the trial with the hypothesis. It's not really that creative, unfortunately, but if you were allowed to see the virus, namely what was happening in the preemptive therapy where you were being allowed essentially to develop low-grade, low-level replication and then be treated quickly to try and prevent it from going to higher-grade replication and disease, that might even in the context of immunosuppression, which is not a you know a foregone conclusion that would happen, that might somehow facilitate development of CMV-specific immune responses, and that somewhere in that gamish of measured immune responses would lie the answer to the clinical observation that we predicted, that there would be less CMV disease in the preemptive versus the prophylaxis group. And that's exactly what we found at 100 days between the two groups in all of the CMB-specific CD4 T-cells, polyfunctional T-cells, multifunctional T-cells, which in many clinical settings have been at least associated with protection, there's no clear immune correlate, were significantly higher in the preemptive group rather than the prophylaxis group. 
you could say, okay, well, doesn't rock my world. You got some CMB, you got immune prime, we measure something. What was more exciting to me was that within those immune responses, we could find specific immune correlates that tracked with whether you did or you didn't develop subsequent CMB disease. And I think that's particularly relevant with the disappointing news, in my view, in the highest risk D plus R minus group of current immune CMI-based assays that, gosh, we at least have some hypothesis-generating correlates that should be tested in future studies. And so really, to me, those were the two most important points about the immune testing that was done, that one uh, approach differentially led to higher levels, that specific aspects of those things that were measured, even in the few prophylaxis patients, were helpful in predicting who did or didn't get CMV disease. And then the other bit of data was, well, is this just related to how much gancyclovir that was brought up earlier, although it was pretty much similar, is we could say that in the PET group where everyone was monitored with a very sensitive assay for 100 days, that 80% of patients did in fact have DNAemia, so presumably had donor-transmitted infection. But interestingly, 20% of even high-risk patients did not have DNAemia, did not develop CMV disease, did not receive a single day of CMV-specific therapy, and did not have CMV-specific immune responses, raising at least the possibility that zero-status defined high-risk may require a footnote, yeah, in a population, but there are going to be people who you can give a valgancyclovir holiday, for example. And so the immune responses in the PET group at 100 days were directly linked. So the 80% who had CMV infection had immune responses here, and those who had no CMV DNA emia presumably didn't transmit, that's one hypothesis, had no measurement. So what it tells us is that the immune responses that were detected were directly driven by CMV antigen exposure, which was the underlying hypothesis. So that's sort of the encapsulation, if you will, of the capsule trial. Okay, that was very bad. I was like, this did you do that on purpose? They need to be edited out. Did you um, do that I on apologize. purpose? <laughs> no, I did not. I promise. Well, T-cells rock my world. You said this isn't going to rock your world. And I think T-cells are awesome. So is this true for kidneys? You hinted at this earlier. Yeah. You know, if the mechanism is what we think the mechanism is based on the lines of data that I described, then it may be more applicable to beyond just liver. But I think it's inappropriate to directly extrapolate. Kidney transplant patients, on average, are on more intensive immunosuppression. Rates of use of ATG are closer to 70 to 80 to 90% in the U.S., perhaps less so in Europe and other places. Um, so there are established kind of gold standard um, comparator arms, if you will, for CMV prevention in kidney. But the data from Lakshan Kumar, who's an undergraduate wunderkind here at UW, suggested that, you know, at least through a specific uh, lens of, of choosing studies that met certain high criteria for state-of-the-art PET and state-of-the-art prophylaxis, 
that some of the same effects on, on CMV disease as an outcome were quite similar to the numeric estimates that we had in capsule for liver transplant patients. So I think it's the perfect fodder for an RCT. It's a hypothesis, feasibility. Yep, we pulled off capsule. But I think in my view, it's premature to just say, yeah, good enough for everybody. I think there's enough differences that it would be prudent to test that before saying we have all the answers that we need. And that's really the uh, grist for the K-pop mill. I think I may have called it K-pet, but we got a new one. And that is kidney transplant preemptive therapy or prophylaxis which is a, a grant that we recently submitted to NIH, and we'll see what the NIH gods say about our idea. But for all the reasons that we just discussed, it's an important clinical question. It's the largest piece of the SOT pie. There are reasons to think it might work, but I think it's premature to say we know it works. And perhaps the more intensive immunosuppression might impair the whole premise of preemptive therapy in terms of developing appropriate immune responses. Although I'll just parenthetically note that 17% of people in capsule received ATG. We did a stratified analysis of immune responses at 100 days in those who did or did not develop ATG, and there were no significant differences. Very small numbers, don't want to go beyond where the data take us. But I think enough tantalizing preliminary data to make this a relevant study that, that would advance the field, I think. Yeah. Well, I thought it was K-Pet last I heard. So K-pop is, <laughs> K-pop is one, way better. Two, I have absolutely no pull at the NIH, but I think that increases your chances of funding because it's, it's a much catchier name. And three, we need this trial. So I, again, I have no pull and I'm you know just Aaron, <laughs> but I think not all organs are created equal. The, the differences you point out are so important and these are absolutely data we need. And they're just fascinating. And the more I mean, you'd get all the additional enrichness of the immune analysis out of that additional kidney population as well, which is only going to help us across the boards. So I think that's fantastic. Thanks for all your work there. Okay, to round out our profi discussion real quick. So that was all preemptive therapy versus prophylaxis and the evolving literature in that space and the trials that we need and are ongoing. But then we also have been blessed recently with another RCT. It's like seriously CMV Christmas of two universal prophylaxis strategies. So we have the RCT that was recently published in JAMA this year of valganciclovir versus latermavir for high risk kidneys. What do we do with that? Like, Because now we have two drugs for universal profi, but perhaps you don't need anything. How do you take all of this and make sense of it? I think it's a relatively straightforward trial that compares the current standard with something that is predicted to be less myelotoxic, perhaps easier because of dosing issues within the kidney transplant population. And that's what the trial set out to do specifically in high-risk CMVD plus R minus kidney transplant patients. And boy, I was impressed at just the undertaking of the trial, multi-country trial of 600 D plus R minus patients is, is no small feat. And boiling down huge amounts of work by investigators, the gracious participation of patients were left with the primary hypothesis of the trial was that latermavir would be non-inferior to valgancyclovir, the established FDA-approved standard against which it was compared, for the endpoint of CMV disease by either investigators or by an endpoint committee. 
by 52 weeks after transplant. And the trial met its primary endpoint of non-inferiority. And if you look either at investigator determined or at endpoint committee adjudicated, the numbers are very, very similar between the two groups. What really stood out from the trial to me was that the number of drug discontinuations, some of the more common toxicities that we worry about with valgancyclovir, leukopenia, neutropenia, were, as expected, significantly lower in the latermavir group versus the valgancyclovir group. And there were some other interesting kind of findings buried in there in terms of the number of patients who had uh, CMV DNA emia detected during the 28-week intervention period, which might have related to the toler differential tolerability between the two drugs. There was a very unexpected finding to me about resistance, because that was something I really worried a lot about based on some in vitro studies suggesting perhaps a lower barrier to resistance and blips happening, at least what's been reported in HS HCT recipients. And so I was pleasantly surprised to see that resistance didn't emerge as an important issue to latermavir because I, if you would have asked me before the trial, I'd say this might be the Achilles heel. So again, pointing out some nuanced differences perhaps between what might happen in the setting of blips in HCT versus SOT, where the rates of breakthrough uh, DNAemia in the latermavir arm were lower than seen in the Valgan arm. And in the Valgan uh, arm, it occurred both in patients who simply were unable to tolerate Valgan and they weren't on anything and had DNAemia, and then also some who actually broke through while they were taking Valgan, perhaps because of dosing issues in the setting of renal dysfunction. So it's complicated to, to tease apart which of those were, were responsible. So 12% incidence of resistance in the Valgan arm and none uh, of resistance to latermavir in the latermavir arm. So that's what the study found. And I think my take-home message is that here's another option that works about as well in terms of preventing CMV disease with 200, up to 200 days of prophylaxis as Valgan, clearly is less um, uh, myelotoxic, but still raises a lot of questions. Gosh, would I then, if I was going to use prophylaxis, would I use this in everybody? Would I try and identify people who might benefit more because they're going to have leukopenia, neutropenia problems or, or dosing problems. So I think those are the questions given some of the financial and insurance and other considerations that go through all of our minds, uh, unfortunately, not just what might work. Yeah. It has an FDA indication now, though, for prevention and kidney transplant, thanks to that trial. So I guess we'll see. I know payers will pay for it outpatient, inpatient. It still has a huge, you know, that's a huge shift in paradigm change in, for inpatients. So Camille, any further thoughts on that? Yeah, I think one of the things I'd say is that just remember that latemavir only covers CMV. So they actually included acyclovir in the trial. So I... I'm always worried that when people start using latemavir, that they'll forget about the acyclovir and the HSV, VZV prevention. And that's something that's really important. I always tell my fellows, you could do that exactly once and you'll never forget again when the patient gets disseminated zoster. So um, I don't think it's pertinent to CMV, but just remember that latemavir and morivavir only cover CMV. So the spectrum's really narrow. We've It's been the lap of luxury to have valgancyclovir covering HSV, VZV, CMV, et cetera. 
And I think your point, Ajit, about resistance is really interesting. Latumavir is a good drug for prevention and a really bad drug for treatment. And why does it work so well for prevention? It's really, I, I think this is why the trial is so good. And it's an RCT. And that's why we do this work, because we actually thought that we'd see significant resistance, but we did not. So that's great. I will say there's a lot of chatter about should programs switch all their D plus R minus kidney transplant patients to Latemavir. And I know that that was in the TID community of practice group chat for a while. And I was thinking, wow, you know, if it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $40,000 for six months, many patients can't actually afford Valgancyclovir now that Genentech has stopped the patient assistance program. So this one is far more expensive. And I, I think Ajit's right just about figuring out cost benefit, figuring out maybe who is at highest need for this. We know um, some patients go into transplant with pancytopenia, and those maybe are the patients who could benefit. There's talk about like lung transplant patients with short telomere syndrome. You know, they may benefit more. So at least initially, I certainly don't recommend a large-scale shift of everybody to Val, um, from Valgancyclovir to Latemavir, but it is perhaps to be done thoughtfully and case by case. And we certainly know those cases that we think can benefit. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And then I love that you said it's like you guys have the notes. It's like I love that you brought up Merevivir then because I do want to touch briefly on treatment as we kind of close out our excellent, excellent discussion on prophylaxis. I think we've learned so much in the last few years and only have a million additional questions to answer, which is why it's so interesting. So treatment, though, we don't have time to go through all of treatment, although treatment is relatively more straightforward. You know, you give Valgancyclovir or Gancyclovir until they don't have CMV anymore, hopefully, and you cross your fingers. But sometimes that doesn't go so well and they get Gancyclovir resistance or we see all kinds of crazy things happen. And we used to just have this like very short list of terrible drugs to go to when that happened. But now we have Mirabavir. And so tell us a little bit about it, what this drug is. What do people need to know about this drug? And then where do you think you use it in the treatment landscape? Do you use it in the treatment landscape? Maybe you don't. Yeah. So I think Valcancyclovir is great for the vast majority of mild to moderate CMV. You know, if people have DNAemia over 100,000 IU per mil, I often will put them in the hospital for intravenous drug. We know that those patients are at much higher risk for developing resistant refractory disease. I don't have data showing that they need to be in for IV. We, in the guidelines, we recommend that anyone with sight-threatening, um, life-threatening CMB be treated with intravenous therapy. But I will say that I think over 80% of our patients, maybe over 90%, get treated with renally adjusted oral valgancyclovir with really good outcomes. I think merubavir has been good for cases of resistant refractory disease. There was just the phase three trial comparing meribavir with investigator-assigned therapy, which was sort of a in-real-life trial where it was either meribavir versus what the investigators decided to start. And it was a hodgepodge of things, including fluscarnate, a little bit of sidofavir. And then some of it was just gancyclovir, valgancyclovir, or combination therapies. And you have to wonder if that's really appropriate in a trial looking at resistant refractory disease. But nonetheless, it did show that people on merivivir had overall much higher rates of clearance and more sustained rates of clearance. Although 
still overall, the vast majority of people had CMV come back in both arms. So that is disappointing. I will say knowing many of the patients who enrolled in that trial, they're often the most immunocompromised and most challenging to manage with comorbidities, renal insufficiency, all kinds of things. But nonetheless, it really showed that Morivivir looks to be a very good therapeutic option. Um, there are significant rates of resistance that develop in patients on Morivivir, and that's a paper that we just published, Sun Wen Cho, who always led the resistance section of the CMB guidelines, is the first author on that. Um, and so it's not a perfect drug in that we do see resistance develop. Um, it's also expensive and not always uh, readily covered by insurance, but I do think it's a great uh, new tool to have. I've tried to use it more when there are cases of defined resistance. I worry that the refractory definition can sometimes be a little overinterpreted or a little overused. So I do see patients who have very low levels of CMV, you know, 78 IU per mil, 132 IU per mil. You know what? I'm not too worried about them and I would not be giving those folks Morivivir. I think for me, it has to usually be several kind of somewhere in the over a thousand and then often higher and sometimes climbing and with low absolute lymphocyte count and we've reduced immunosuppression and done what we can. So I think it should be used cautiously, but it's a good, I think it's a good option. I will say if they're really immunocompromised, I always throw some acyclovir or famvir in for disseminated zoster um, and HSV prevention. I don't know. Yeah. I'm using it. I like it. Yeah. I've seen it. It's oral. It's exciting. Yeah. I think that's really well said. I think your points are super well taken. I agree. So we, our lab at least, we can't even send resistance testing unless you have at least a thousand. And usually you want a little more than that to get an accurate result. It comes back invalid and agree. True resistance, really more so than refractory. Remember the HSV VZ thing for both this and Latermavir. Super good teaching points. Will always be a test question. Will always be that you forget it once and you'll never screw it up again. Um, and then it tastes bad. Well, it doesn't actually taste bad, but it makes your mouth taste pretty bad. Kind of like Paxlovid. So that was like the dose limiting toxicity in the phase one when we were trying to use it for prevention. Remember that? Woof. So watch out for that. Counsel your patients. But all in all, it's super nice to have a not phoscarnet option, I think. So that's where we've kind of been positioning it as well. Yeah. All right, guys, we're almost at the end here. But until we before we start our I Feel Nerdy segment, which is the best segment of the podcast, I do want to talk break, talk the yeah. <laughs> see, it's time to be done because I'm <laughs> my words are stumbling now. I'm so excited. Um, I want to touch on vaccines for a hot sec. Mm. Ajit, coming to you since you did this work too, just stop doing all this good work and then you won't have to talk so much. Vaccines are fascinating in this space. And then again, you get all into the immunology, which we could talk for a whole nother hour on. And this is going to look different for solid organ transplant patients versus cell transplant patients because then you have to vaccinate the donor, which is like mind-blowingly cool. But talk to me about CMV vaccines and what you're working on. And for those of you who are not fortunate enough to be on this call right now, because that's the best call ever, Ajit has a massive horse cardboard cutout behind him that we talked about before we started. So finally, I can, he will explain to you why. Yes. With a CMV necklace with a slash through it that you may have seen, that's Colt, the mascot for the um, CMV vaccine trial in orthotopic liver transplant. So that's what Aaron was talking about. Yeah. I'm really excited about just what seems like a new era about immune-based approaches for CMV prevention. I mean, this is an immune problem, plain and simple. 
we're all exposed to CMV, but who comes down with CMV problems? It's persons who have impaired CMV-specific immunity, either in the context of primary infection or reactivation. And so I think with the advances that have occurred in uh, vaccine technology, the different platforms that are available, and important studies that are now focusing on preventing CMV infection as an approach to preventing congenital CMV infection, which is a major health uh, problem throughout the world, have really allowed this to be on the table for discussion for other populations where CMV infection and disease are a problem, namely immunocompromised patients such as transplant. And there's several platforms that are being investigated or have completed evaluation. And the particular platform that we're studying is the MVA or Modified Vaccinia Ankara virus platform. And for people who might be familiar with the smallpox vaccine, uh, a cousin of this particular vaccine that's uh, engineered to encode specific CMB proteins is currently FDA approved for preventing smallpox and has been used in mpox as well. And the vector is convenient because it's been studied in hundreds of thousands of patients. It doesn't replicate in mammalian cells. It's a very efficient platform for leading to high-level expression of things that you engineer into that platform, like CMB proteins. And so it, it really is an exciting approach, one exciting approach to determine whether by eliciting CMB immune responses that may not be perfect, but are something better than zero. So if I become a CMB R plus wannabe with a vaccine, that maybe that combined with boosting that occurs in the context of controlled replication in PET that might be the cat's meow. So it really does provide kind of a prime boost approach that might not require such a high bar of sterilizing immunity, which is what people have talked about in the setting of congenital disease, conge congenital infection and disease. But, you know, it, CMV vaccines and transplant do have a checkered past. And so I think people will call out that there was an exciting CMV DNA vaccine that was made by Astellas that was studied in a phase three study that really didn't show much in the way of immunogenicity, but there are really important differences. That was a DNA vaccine that was given post-transplant in people who were highly immunosuppressed. So maybe it would have been predictable. This is Monday morning quarterbacking, to be clear, but really disappointing. There was the recent LCMV trial into using a, a different vector that also was able to express levels of, of uh, CMV-specific products that at least look like they induce CMV-specific immune responses. I haven't seen the trial publication, but further continuation of that, that product appears to have been halted from what I can tell on the website. And so, you know, there have been some tough bumps in the road for CMV vaccines, and I don't know whether this will necessarily be effective, but I think with preemptive therapy that provides a very efficient platform. It really is a nice plug and play platform, whether it's this vaccine, that vaccine, or the other vaccine given pre-transplant. You have many, many biologically relevant, clinically relevant, how much drug do I have to give? How much viremia will I have? How much CMV disease will I have? That you can test quite efficiently rather than on a backdrop of prophylaxis for six months or however long 
to be able to really understand relatively quickly um, whether you have something that might require a larger, more expensive, more complex trial. So as important as the specific vaccine candidate to me is really the platform that'll allow us to move the field forward. Yeah. There's also a lot of nuances about when you're going to provide vaccine, you know, in a perfect world, somehow we would know who's going to need a transplant in the near future, but not like the person that comes crashing into the MICU needing lung transplant, because that's not going to be a good time to vaccinate them, right? So it's hard to figure out exactly how we're going to get it right. Also, do we vaccinate people who then have a five to seven year wait time for kidneys? I am interested and sort of excited by the mRNA vaccine uh, being developed by Moderna that looks promising in healthy adults, both CMV positive and CMV negative. It looks like it boosts immunity. And my colleague, Lindsay Baden over at Brigham and Women's Hospital is leading the stem cell trial. So that also looks interesting. But again, Stanley Plotkin and others, uh, including me, wrote a review that was in JID, I think in 2018 as well. Um, looking at CMB vaccines. And it's been a long, as Ajit mentioned, a long and storied history that unfortunately has been a lot more challenging than we might have hoped. I think CMB vaccines have been sought after longer than Ajit and I have been alive, which is a while. And so unfortunately, it's not as straightforward. And I think for a lot of the reasons that Ajit is mentioning too, and then how are we going to position this and how are we going to figure out optimal ways to use it? And hopefully, though, it'll be an important tool because people head into CMV as though it's a disease to which we must provide antiviral therapy. But really, CMV is an opportunistic infection of over-immunosuppression. Right. Sometimes you do need to provide treatment for it, but realistically, it's not like an E. coli bacteremia. Like that's not right. Well, might go away on itself, but we're not going to try that. Um, yeah. Whereas CMB is really a disease of the immune system. And so how can we better support the immune system to figure out how to not let people get CMB? Yeah, I've, I've said that here before. What cures CMB? An immune system. If only it were that simple, right? But I, I think that, I mean, just all the immune phenotypes, the logistics of when you vaccinate in relation to the type of transplant and then subsequent immunosuppression is fascinating. And every patient's going to be different, right? Even that fit a certain mold. So I think it's super exciting. I hope Colt like charges ahead full speed. And <laughs> I try the whole time you're talking, I was like, I'm trying to think of a pun to, to end this. And it's I been just... a slow trot, but we're hoping to move to a canter in the near future as yes. was just discussed clear, at the steering committee meeting. Yes. Clear a, clear a hurdle with a ribbon, all that jazz. So all right, guys. Well, with that, the time has come. The Breakpoint's faithful for the I Feel Nerdy segment of the podcast. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place and a closing segment for panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's I Feel Nerdy, this is like, I don't know how you guys are going to pick because you know all the things and you've studied them all. Um, but I just think there's so much that has changed in the last five years and it just fascinates me. So what do you think is the coolest thing that you have learned because that's the other thing about CMV. It's very humbling, right? You learn something new every day. There's always a patient that's going to teach you something cool. So what's the coolest thing you've learned in the last, you know, three to five years? What's really just fascinated you or really been the thing that's like this totally changed how I think about this disease? I can go first. I, I think there's some things that have surprised me that I wouldn't have predicted. And I think this conceptual hair of the dog analogy that we were using, like, 
Is that a good thing? Up until now, the conventional wisdom and paradigm is just do it, just suppress the virus. Mm. And I guess that might still ultimately be the goal through immunity, through drugs that you take forever, like Bactrim for your life. But but I think my just way of thinking about CMV and what might be for the long term in SOT, which is different than HSCT, like we talked about, that that maybe needs to be re-examined in a way that we didn't think about perhaps uh, some time ago. So that, that's been surprising to me. And then can I express one disappointment I have that there was yeah. so much hype, so much excitement about me included, maybe excitement veering into you know unbridled enthusiasm uh, is related to uh, immune monitoring. And I'm just, I guess I'm, I'm kind of bummed out um, with the data in the highest risk group where we need such stuff, where we have a big unmet need, that if you critically look at the data in the group that you want it to work the best or help you the most, is the group in whom it appears to work the least. And so that's been a great disappointment to me because I you know, drank the Kool-Aid, I think, thinking, wow, this is going to make life so much easier, better. I can't wait. And now study after study from observational using excellent hypothesis, hey, it looks bad if you don't have a readout in assay X. Now all the way to interventional trials that put the test to the test, as it were. And unfortunately, um, the results are not what I think we might have hoped that they would be. So that that's one that's kind of bummed me out for the lack of a more technical term, specifically in the group that we need it the most. I couldn't agree more. I it was so hype about cell specific monitoring. And um and I just yes, I there's you know, I was gonna make a joke that I hope I have you guys back in a year and we have something to say about this because that's <laughs> I mean, Camille made this point earlier. Like everyone wants that number that says, Do I start this drug or stop this drug? Like tell me what it is and I'll follow it, right? We want things to be as objective as possible. And that's just like simply not the case. We don't have a lot of that in this space, but that would be something, right? Okay. If this is this, then I could stop and my patient will be safe. And that's all we just want to do no harm. And so it is a bummer that we're not quite there yet, but I hope the book isn't completely closed. I don't think it is, but it is, it is kind of a bummer. Yeah. Camille, what's yours? Well, I would, I would share Ajit's disappointment in the cellular mediated immune assays. We did with Dipali Kumar, we did the largest trial in kidneys with the T-spot CMB. And we were so excited thinking like, this'll be it. We will crack this. This'll be great, we can know who's at risk, who's not at risk, who, you know, who needs a lot of attention paid to them, who doesn't. And it was such a flop with the D plus R minus. So that was really disappointing. We showed that it works for R plus, but like R plus don't get much disease anyway. So like, we don't really need that. <laughs> They're um, fine. So was, yeah, that was really disappointing. I mean, there's been some nice work. I think even the large trial that was just published by Oral Manuel out of um, Switzerland as well shows a, a lot of additional diagnostic uh, testing for kind of a short slide, like short improvement. So um, that has been disappointing. You know what I do actually love is using the absolute lymphocyte count to predict who's going to get recurrent CMV and who's at risk for CMV at the end of prophylaxis and whatnot. Hey, man, everybody does a diff. Like diffs are everywhere. Not everybody, <laughs> but all the cool kids are doing diffs, right? 
This is I mean, yeah, right. So cool. Case. We certainly don't under order labs in the United States, at least. So <laughs> you're never like, man, I really wish I had checked more serum creatinins because you just always do. So, so Raymond Razanablis pub- published data on looking at the absolute lymphocyte count at the end of prophylaxis. And then Brad Gardner, when he was at Tufts with David Steinman, published data on using the absolute lymphocyte count to see who's at risk for recurrent CMV. And I find that to be super useful. And hey, it's free. I don't have to argue with my lab about sending an expensive test of unclear certainty and, you know, whatever. Um, so I actually love using that. I have a great dot phrase in Epic. Um, people can email me if they want to copy my dot phrase. Um, <laughs> but it, it's actually really helpful. And then, of course, it is what CMV is about, right? Because we need good lymphocytes to prevent CMV. And when our absolute lymphocyte counts really low, that's like very problematic. Yeah. So... Yeah. yeah. That's a- There's nothing like a good dot phrase. I'm sure you're going to be getting several emails for that now. You said it here. So with that, thank you so much for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. This episode today was hosted by Aaron McCreary and features guests Dr. Camille Cotton and Dr. Ajit LeMay. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Jason Pogue, and myself. This episode was produced by Drs. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard, and it was peer-reviewed by Drs. Carrie McCracken and Sonal Patel and edited by Carly Shifko. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Dr. Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Dr. Steve Smoke, and you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.